Well, this morning, uh, we do want to continue through our study of the Gospel of John. And if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be, um, I said last week we wrapped up chapter 7, and then I got into my study this week and I realized we're on the very last verse of chapter 7 into the first 11 verses of chapter 8. So don't be discouraged, we are making progress. I want to start with these questions. How do we know who God is? How do we know what God is like? How do we know what a human being is? How do we know the origins of life? How do we know the purpose and meaning of life? How do we know what is right and good? How do we know what sin is? How do we know the consequences of sin? How do we know how a person can be saved from their sins? And there's more questions besides. But the answer to all these questions and more is, of course, the Bible. Really, when it comes down to it, that is the only place we can go to to find the answers to those most important questions in life. We can't find the answers to these questions by looking within or even by careful study of the universe alone. There are just a few load-bearing pillars in Christianity. There are lots and lots of secondary and third-tier doctrines that Christians of good conscience can and will disagree over. But those primary load-bearing kind of doctrines are the sort where if they could be knocked out, the whole thing would come tumbling down. And as Christians, we need to be intellectually honest about this. What are some of those load-bearing pillars of the Christian faith? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully man without being less of either. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. If that was proven untrue, then the whole Christian faith would come toppling down. Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty for our sins. You knock that out, we've got nothing. Jesus rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if the resurrection never happened, if that isn't a fact, this is all just a hoax. We are saved by the grace of God. That is, we cannot add to or take away from Christ's finished work on the cross as full payment for our sin. If that's not true, then Christianity isn't good news, it's the same old news. Christianity is no different from every other religious scheme by which man tries to earn through good works from God what he is only willing to give if we meet certain standards. That's not Christianity, that's not the good news, that's the same old news. If any of these things are kicked out, there is no Christianity. Now, these are the primary doctrines of the Christian faith. Baptists, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Wesleyans, and Advent Christians, and every other flavor of Christendom, we have all separated off from one another down through the years because of other things. But we are all united in a full-throated way in endorsing those truths. We're in full agreement on those things. And in fact, that is what defines the frontier of what is Christian and what isn't. We can and will disagree about many other things, but in order to be a Christian, we must agree on those things. 
These are what unify us. But, again, I ask, how do we know that these things are true? Where did we learn them? And once again, our answer is the Word of God, the Bible. You see, a belief in the veracity, authority, and inerrancy of the Bible is another one of those load-bearing pillars. And in fact, it's perhaps even more foundational to all the others because it's on the testimony of the Bible that we come to arrive at those critical truths. If the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible were to become suspect, then all those other truths would, by extension, be brought into question as well. Saving faith is inextricably linked to the Word of God. Even the Word of God tells us this. In Romans 10.17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing what? The words of Christ. Everything is built upon and flowing from this book. And all of this brings to us to our text for this morning. All of this brings us to our text. John 7, 53, 8, chapter, 8, 1 through 11. And in it we find this famous story. You're no doubt very familiar with it. In fact, when I was at, at pastoring at my church in Florida, a woman in the church, a dear friend, asked me to preach on this story because it was her favorite Bible story. And I can remember my earliest memory of this story is on flannel graph as a kid in Sunday school, you know. It's a great, great story. It's a classic. It contains that um, line that even if you're a non-Christian, you're aware of it, where he who is without sin will cast the first stone. That's something that's just out there in the popular culture ether, sort of. We all know that line, and that's out of this story. However, if you look at your Bibles, this story is bracketed off. There's brackets around it. Or, depending on your version, it might be contained in a footnote. And I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll start talking about why that is so. But first, let's read it, beginning at 753 through 811. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, when I was uh, pursuing my Master's of Divinity degree, and I don't say that to impress anyone. It wasn't that great. <laughs> it's not like I was a great student. And this is actually a story about how I'm not a good student. I took a class called Textual Criticism, 
which is the sort of field of biblical studies that deals with why is this bracketed off. And when I got to this, I was like, okay, what do I remember from textual criticism? Nothing. (laughs) Zero. I just remember that it exists. I think it was one of those classes where I was busy, and I did just what I needed to do to pass the test and write the papers, and then as soon as it was over, gone. So I had to go back and re-educate myself on this whole topic this week. And I need to thank some people, like uh, I read a sermon by John Piper that was very helpful. I read some commentaries. I revisited my old textbook. All of this stuff, very helpful. There are people like Don Carson out there. I just say that so you don't think I'm smart. (laughs) I'm not. I'm standing on the opinions and ideas of many well-read Bible scholars this morning, and I had to do a deep dive into a subject, subject that I'm not particularly comfortable in myself. But one of the things we have to know at the front end of this whole topic this morning is this is a very unusual text. As I already pointed out, some of us are noticing, maybe for the first time, that these verses are set off from the rest of the gospel. And the reason for this is that most New Testament scholars do not think that this was part of the gospel of John when it was first written. Throughout this study, we have been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of John, dissecting a different portion of Scripture every week. And when we put this particular string of verses under the microscope, we simply have to address the elephant in the room, which is why is this story set off from the rest of the Gospel? If I understand the caliber of State Road Christians... Uh, Some of you just are not going to be content if we don't even address the issue of those little brackets. What's going on there? Why is that the case? Uh, Don Carson, who is widely considered one of the best New New Testament scholars in the world, writes, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or relegate it to a footnote. Leon Morris writes, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the Gospel of John. And the reason why this is all of interest is because of all that stuff we said at the beginning. Everything that matters hangs off of the reliability of the Bible. So when we come to this part that's bracketed off, does that then make us go, whoa, everything's up for grabs? If they got this wrong, What else have they gotten wrong? I don't want to avoid that question. I want to turn directly into it and address it. Because my hope is at the end of this time, we'll all walk out of here with that question having been raised and then bedded back down in worshipful appreciation for how God has protected his word over the years. And I believe, yes, we can have complete confidence in our Bibles. So let's start by considering how the Bible was handed down to us in those intervening centuries, in those years before the advent of the printing press in the 15th century. There's many centuries there, about you know, 14 or 15 of them in there, where the Bible would have been written by hand, laboriously, scribes sitting letter by letter writing them out. I mean, with the advent of smartphones and computers, I sat down about a week ago to write a letter. It was the first honest-to-goodness letter I've written in forever, and it hurt. (laughs) It's like, oh, that cramps. But think about it. Writing the entire Bible by hand, that's amazing. 
quite a job. So sometime in the first century A.D., John, the Apostle John, wrote down his gospel account for the first time. He wrote out the gospel of John. And then that gospel was copied and recopied for centuries. The original manuscript does not exist. And this was obviously done, again, laboriously, by hand. Now here's what's amazing and hopefully also very reassuring to you. The abundance of those manuscripts that survive of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament is simply staggering. Especially compared to the number of manuscripts for ancient works from the same time period. Historians generally consider one of the best examples of preserved ancient literature is Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. That was originally composed between 58 and 50 B.C., And they say that because they have 10 whole copies of this text. And all of them date from about the 10th century or later of the copies that they have. So in other words, they have 10 whole copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, but the copies they have were written about 1,000 years after the original manuscript was written. But compare those numbers with the number of manuscripts for the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, there are a total of 5,801 manuscripts of the New Testament still in existence today. That's amazing. As I just said, there are only 10 copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, and all of them were written nearly 1,000 years after the original copies were first written. But there are over 5,000 ancient copies of the New Testament preserved for us and many hundreds that predate the earliest known copies of other ancient works that were written around the same time. So we actually have some very early copies. No other ancient book comes even close to those kinds of numbers. And what's more, when we compare those copies, with very few exceptions, they agree with one another. And even those areas where they do not line up perfectly are either minor scribal errors, like the repetition of a word, or one letter that's misplaced or something, or points which do not alter any doctrine or teaching of the Bible. Consider this, especially when we think about the text we're studying this morning. There are only two manuscripts known in existence of Tacitus's Histories and the Annals, which was originally composed about A.D. 100, the same time that many of the biblical writers were writing. One of those copies is from the 9th century and the other from the 11th. Imagine with me the difficulty if you were a historian and those two remaining manuscripts differed significantly from one another. How would you know which one was true? You have two existing copies of the same manuscript, but one says one thing, another says another. How do you know which is the more accurate of the two manuscripts? The answer is you can't tell, because there's only two. You can only compare them one to another, and so it's a he's, it said versus it said scenario. However, the great benefit of having over 5,000 ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament is that it allows us to compare copies against each other. It allows us to ask, does this agree with the majority of the other copies? Or, how do later copies compare to the earliest ones? Have they changed at all over time? 
And well, here's the good news. With very few exceptions, they have not. This text that we're looking at this morning is one of those very rare instances where they do. Later manuscripts of the Gospel of John have this story, but all of the earliest ones do not. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But because of the sheer volume of ancient New Testament copies and their agreement with one another, we can absolutely have confidence that our Bibles are a true rendering of the original writings. God has preserved and protected his words to us and so that we can rest our whole weight on them with confidence. There are thousands of ancient copies of the New Testament, not just a handful, and they overwhelmingly agree No other example of ancient literature has such an amazing abundance of sister copies to corroborate its content. Now, our text for this morning, again, is one of those rare instances where they do part. Later copies do part company from earlier ones. But it is comforting that this isn't an alteration of an existing story. It's not like John chapter 7, which we just studied, changed later. It's just this was copied and pasted in between different stories, in in whole, in total. That's how this came to be. The story of the woman caught in adultery is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. All the earliest church fathers omit this passage when they're commenting on John, passing directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. And in fact, I think I would argue that the text flows more cleanly if you leave out this story. No Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with John's gospel. When the story does start to appear in manuscript copies of the gospel of John, it shows up in three different places other than here, and even once it shows up in a manuscript of the gospel of Luke. And additionally, and here we have to dive into stuff that I really is way above my pay grade, its style and vocabulary are more unlike the rest of the book of John than any other paragraph in this gospel. So in other words, he's using words here that John never uses. It's just got a different style. You notice that the most intriguing part about this story has Jesus writing in the sand, but we don't know what he writes. And that's not like John. John is always very careful to explain the significance of what's happening. And John writes in a very simple Greek. This writes in kind of a very elevated Greek, using kind of highfalutin language in places. And so all of this adds up to people going, this doesn't look right. So based on all the available evidence, it seems to me anyway, quite conclusive that this story was not part of John's gospel when he first wrote it, but really was probably added much later. However, and this is the main point, this is if, you, <laughs> if I left off right there and just walked off the stage, you would probably go, that was the worst sermon ever. <laughs> he just got up there, said that's probably wrong, and walked away. However, I don't think that this should shake our confidence at all in the veracity and reliability of our Bibles. Uh, and I feel that way for two reasons. First, these kinds of discrepancies where the content of later manuscripts has strayed in any way, shape, or form from earlier ones, it's super rare. And because of that vast abundance of manuscripts, when it does happen, we're made aware of it. 
This is bracketed off very carefully in your Bible so that you know this fact when you study it. And you understand that. That this, is just, this, this, this deserves different treatment than the rest of the gospel. And I think that that's comforting to me. I, I appreciate that kind of care. But the second thing I want you to see about this story is that nothing hangs off of it. As far as its central meaning, it's uh, what it communicates to us as followers of Jesus, it doesn't provide any new information that we can't find elsewhere in the Bible. As far as its central payload of content, it's simply reinforcing themes that we find throughout the New Testament. Nothing is changed by including or leaving this story out as far as our understanding of who Jesus is. The meaning and significance of this story is supported in spades elsewhere in the Bible. And its inclusion doesn't change anything in a negative sense. So after centuries and centuries of hand-copying the Bible, it is absolutely amazing to me that so few variations have, occur have occurred and that those few that do exist do nothing to change or even challenge the doctrines and teachings of the Bible. Nothing here is challenged by this, the inclusion of the story. God has protected his word and has preserved those early copies in such amazing abundance that they corroborate and authenticate their faithfulness to the originals by their agreement with one another. So we have devoted most of our time this morning to addressing possible concerns that arise out of this story and how it came to be in the Bible. And hopefully, having raised those concerns, I have successfully bedded them back down. We're okay, right? I hope so. Uh, we can have absolute confidence in the Bible that they are faithful to, in, in rendering the original writings. But that does leave us with one additional question. What do we make of this story? Original or not, I would like to think it really happened. And I think there's good reason to believe that it did. John, you might remember, concludes his gospel by saying this, Now there are also many other things Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I tend to think that this is one of those stories of something else that Jesus did. And this is one of those many other things. And the account may have circulated for a long time among Christians before kind of being tacked on to the book of John later on. Given the question marks that surround this story, we don't need to make it the basis of our doctrinal understanding. But it can serve as a helpful tool, I think, in illustrating what all the other scriptures and the plain teaching of the Gospels makes plain. The main point or lesson of this story is this. Jesus puts grace above the law and calls us to live righteous lives on the foundation of grace and not out of dutiful obligation to the law. Now, sometimes as Christians, we throw out words and we just assume that people understand what we mean. And I don't know who's listening to this online. I don't know actually who's here in the audience today or what they're thinking. But when I say the word grace, what I mean by that word, when I say, what, how did I put it? Jesus puts grace above the law. 
In other words, we're made right with the Father not because we're good or hardworking or we're trying really hard to do what's right. As a Christian, what grace means is that we've been made right to the Father based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus took our penalty on the cross for all our sins and gave us his reward, and we did nothing to deserve that. That's grace. Law, on the other hand, is over and against the idea of grace. Law-keeping means that your standing with God the Father is based on your ability to do all the do's and not do all the do-nots. And these are two very different ways of approaching God. And the gospel is very plain that God wants us to live in relationship to him on the basis of grace, that he has done for us what was needed, and we rest in his gracious generosity to us. My standing before God the Father, your standing before God the Father is not resting at all on your goodness. It's resting on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's grace. It's a gift. And this is really the main point of this story. The woman is caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. In verses four through five, the scribes and Pharisees put Jesus to the test. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are always testing Jesus and trying to trap him in different ways. So this has the ring of truth to it, does it not? This is a familiar pattern we've noticed in the way that Jesus and the Pharisees relate to one another. It's here in this story also, and it does have the ring of truth. Here's what they say. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This is obviously a trap. If Jesus said, yes, the woman must be stoned in accordance with the law, then what would happen to his reputation as the friend of sinners? What would happen to all the grace and love talk and the adoration of the common man? He would lose support. The common people would no doubt have abandoned him and would never accept his gracious message of forgiveness after that. But if he said, no, the woman should not be stoned, then he was contradicting the law. This would be a serious offense. Either way, the Pharisees would be pleased with the result. They've got him trapped, or so they think. <laughs> the religious leaders think they're pretty slick. They've put Jesus in a seemingly impossible situation where he had to choose between directly violating the law of Moses or insisting on a drastic and unpopular penalty that was seldom enforced. But Jesus, and also there's something very fishy going on here, isn't there? Where's the fella? <laughs> yeah, there's two people who were involved in this act. They only bring the woman. And the law of Moses, if we'll go back to that in a minute, says that they both should be put to death, but here they're only concerned with the woman. But we're going to come back to that idea. Jesus does the weirdest thing, though. He bent down and began writing in the dust. Imagine the scene. And that raises a question, what did Jesus write in the sand? Well, we don't know. That's the short answer. But whatever he wrote, it seems to bring to the minds of the men who are there their own sinfulness. And it sets them up like pins for the bowling ball of Jesus' next statement. For after writing in the dust, Jesus said, If any of you is without sin, 
Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. (laughs) Perfect answer. So like Jesus, isn't it? Jesus always has this perfect answer. When When they think they've got him pinned, He just does this judo thing, and all of a sudden, they're the ones on their backs. They're trapped. It's over. (laughs) And he does it again right here. That's why I'd like to think this is one of those true stories. One by one, the embarrassed and ashamed rulers, the oldest first of all, all the way down to the youngest, condemned by their own consciences, they slip away with their tail between their legs. And Jesus is left alone with this woman, this poor woman. And Jesus announced, Where did they go? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And as we analyze this incident, we begin to see the nature of morality which flows from grace in contrast to a legalistic morality. Grace versus the law. And I got three, three ways in which they are contrasted. The first is this. The morality of the legalistic Pharisees is impersonal. It cared nothing about the woman herself. Really, this woman to the Pharisees is just a handy stick to beat Jesus with. That's all she is. Have you ever known a legalistic person? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) But if you have, if you've ever known somebody who's very legalistic, Tell me, were they hypocritical ever? Were they more concerned about you personally or about your appearance, your conduct, the way it looked? This woman had no value in their eyes personally. They didn't care about her as a person. She was used to make a point. But Jesus did care about her individually, personally. She was guilty. Let's not lose sight of the fact that what she did was wrong. It's a grievous sin. She's guilty of wickedness. But what's what's most important in this story is not the fact that she's a sinner, which is all of us, right? But how does Jesus deal with her on the basis of her sin? In spite of her sin, Jesus refused to condemn her. Grace salvages, but the law buries and destroys. So this is an important thing to see. It's very impersonal to the Pharisees. They don't care about the woman. They're not rooting for her. They don't want her to live righteously, necessarily. She's just a handy stick to beat Jesus with. Another thing that differentiates the two is that the the morality of the legalist is selective. And again, where's the guy? The Pharisees brought the woman caught in the act of adultery, but where's the man? The law says this, and we read this in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20. If a man man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. That's the law of Moses. But their morality excused some while accusing others. Romans 2.11 says of God that God shows no partiality. The law that they cited required that both guilty parties be punished, not just the woman. So how concerned about the law are they really? 
It does seem suspicious that the man went free, but that they dragged this woman out for this public condemnation. The scribes and Pharisees handled the manner in a brutal fashion, even in the way that they interrupted the Lord's teaching and pushed the woman into the midst of the crowd. Jesus, however, raises the issue of universal guilt. He says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Every man there was forced to admit that he stood beside the woman before the bar of justice. They were all equally sinners. I think sometimes those who are not part of the church look at the church and they think we're, we have it in mind that we're the good ones and everyone out there is bad. <laughs> and I'm not saying there aren't some people in the church who feel that way. But that is totally out of step with an authentic understanding of Christianity. Before the bar of justice, I am just as guilty of sin as this woman who was brought before Jesus. I have no righteousness of my own to brag about. I have no righteousness of my own to commend me to God the Father. I have no resume of works by which to say to God, see, you owe me. (laughs) That does not exist. All I have is Jesus. And so when somebody is caught in sin, the first reaction of somebody who has authentically tasted grace and the gospel should not be to shove them into the middle of the crowd and say, look what they've done, because that's me. I'm a sinner like, like them. I've been shown grace. And so we root for one another, we help one another, we seek, even in sin, to confront that we might become like Jesus more and more authentically. But this, of course, is not what's happening with these Pharisees, these legalists. Another point of contrast, the, moral, the morality of the legalist is punishment-oriented. Don't get me wrong, the law of God, as expressed through Moses, was a good and holy expression of righteousness. Some of us hear this idea about somebody who is caught in sin being killed, and we think, well, that's a horrible overreaction. Is that really in the law of God? But isn't that the, the fact that surrounds all of the Bible? What is the end of sinners? Condemnation and wrath. It is a true thing in the Bible that those who are sinners will one day suffer the wrath of God unless they receive the free gift of salvation, grace. Whether they receive it on earth or at the second coming, it is is going to happen. I don't think that this is advocating for God's people to go out and stone people or any such thing as all that. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying, though, that this is, the law was a reflection of a, of a truth that is true for all sinners, which is that the, pun, the wages of sin is death. That's the Bible. That's Romans 3.23. We can't sidestep that. And that at the end, the ultimate end of, wicker, of the wicked is judgment and wrath. But here's something very important to see. That is not God's heart towards sinners. Adultery is wrong. And we are to care about doing right, but the Pharisees were not concerned with seeing transformation in the woman's life or encouraging right action. They just wanted to see her punished, not helped, and bettered. On the other hand, everything Jesus did was righteous, 
and was designed to produce righteousness. Jesus does not wink, wink, nod, nod at the woman's sin. He tells her to sin no more. Jesus affirmed the law's penalty for sin, but demanded sinlessness from anyone who would execute it. In other words, if you want to play judge and jury, you have to be like God. You must be sinless. Christ himself judged the sin wrong, but rather than condemn the sinner, Jesus withheld the penalty so that she might go and sin no more. Instead of passing judgment on the woman, Jesus passed judgment on these would-be judges. They really are caught in their own trap. They brought the woman to Jesus, caught and exposed, and now they are the ones who are caught and exposed by their own consciences before God. And no doubt Jesus was indignant that they had treated the woman in this way. It was required by Jewish law that the accusers cast the first stones, Deuteronomy 17.7. Jesus was not asking that sinless men judge the women, for he was the only sinless person there. He was referring probably to the particular sin of the woman, a sin that had no doubt been committed privately in the heart of these men. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that any of you who have looked at a woman with lustful intent, it's the same as committing adultery. And perhaps convicted by their own consciences that they were also adulterers in a sense, the accusers quietly left the scene. Now, that's a bit of conjecture on my part. But something happens in this exchange that's not disclosed to us, and maybe we have to fill in the blanks a little bit. What was it that they felt accused about? But then Jesus forgives her and warned her to sin no more. We must not interpret this event to mean that Jesus was easy on sin, though, like, as I've already said, or that he contradicted the law. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that he would have to one day die for what she had done. Jesus does not sweep this under the rug. He goes to the cross. He says, I'm the adulteress and the adulterer also. And he got up on the cross and took the penalty there publicly for this woman. Nothing is being swept under the rug in this moment at all. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. By applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, the Jewish leaders were violating both the letter and spirit of the law. But Jesus looks on the woman and he takes her place. He essentially says, stone me later at the cross. The law was given to reveal sin. And we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. Nobody has ever experienced grace who does not first come to an understanding of their need for it. Before there can ever be the good news of the gospel, there has to be the bad news that I need it. And this is true for all of us. Law and grace do not compete with each other. Properly understood, they complement each other. We've used the example before of the mirror, this analogy that's been used so much in the church, it's almost trite, I don't want to use it, but it's just the best analogy I know. Which again, if you go to the mirror and you're dirty, the mirror tells you your state, but it can do nothing to clean you. The mirror says you're dirty, you need a shower. The Bible says you're a sinner, you need a savior. But if you took the mirror and tried to clean, clean yourself with it, all you would do is get the mirror dirty. And that's what these Pharisees have done. They've taken the word of God 
And they've said, okay, I'll clean myself by doing all the do's and not doing all the don'ts. And in so doing, they have dirtied the Bible, making it unrecognizable when Jesus starts talking about grace. And this is essentially what they have done. They don't understand the way that law and grace relate to one another. A mirror tells us we need a shower. The Bible tells us we need a savior. We need grace. We need Jesus. We cannot clean ourselves up through our own works. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, nobody was e- but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. The law is very important because it tells us that we, what we need. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. Jesus famously concludes this story by saying to the woman with whom he is now alone, neither do I condemn you, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Brothers and sisters, those are great words to close this message. And it's not a truth that we only find in this story. It's a truth we find throughout the testimony of Jesus and the Gospels, that Jesus is not sent to condemn us, but to extend us the free gift of grace and mercy. And we, of course, are called to go on the basis of that grace to go out and sin no more. John Piper, commenting on this passage, points out that Jesus does not say, neither do I condemn you, so it does not matter if you commit adultery, but I am reestablishing righteousness in your life on the basis of an experience of grace. Don't commit adultery anymore, not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and have been rescued by his grace, saved by grace. And now because we no longer live in fear of punishment, we are truly free to respond to God's commands to do right out of a love for him, out of a desire to be like the God who saved us. Jesus has, by the gospel, by the cross, by grace, taken away the threat of punishment. Do you know that today, brothers and sisters? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That sword has been completely lifted. There is no condemnation. For your sins, there is no punishment. Jesus paid for it. Now, somebody who has truly tasted grace, loved it, appreciated, doesn't respond to that by saying, well, I can go hog wild and do whatever I want. That's not the response of a Christian, somebody with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Nobody who becomes a Christian does not have a, always has a particular love for righteousness. Because the sword has been lifted, we are so filled with gratitude that on the basis of grace, we can now go out and do right because that's the right thing to do. Because it's one way we say to God, I love who you are. I want to be like you. I want to be with you. It's an amazing thing that the punishment has been lifted so that now we can respond by grace. Uh, We can respond in such a way that shows we understand grace. In the Bible, it says that perfect perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We're no longer motivated by fear of stoning. We're motivated by a love of righteousness, by a desire to be like God. And that's a wonderful thing.